All right, well, without further ado, let's open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians chapter 3, start reading from verse 12 and read through verse 17. I invite you to follow along. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. May God be blessed by the reading of His Word. So we started in a little mini-series in the book of Colossians uh, last Lord's Day, and the major goal was to connect some of this application to uh, our study of 2 Peter. We noted much of Second Peter was being on guard against false teaching and false teachers. And so we want to understand positively how are we supposed to conduct ourselves in the midst of such challenges as we continue to await on the Lord, as He is faithful to His promises, even as Peter asks, or as he states, you know what kind of people you ought to be. And so this passage in Colossians, I think, really unpacks that for us. The application uh, to our favor is instantly here. We can, we can read these words, we can understand them, and say, yes, this is how the church is supposed to conduct itself. This is the, what the church is supposed to put on. Not only externally, but even as Paul says in verse 12, he says, put on a heart of these things. All of these things manifest themselves externally precisely because they are dispositions of the heart. They are placed there by the Holy Spirit. And so we as believers simply walk consistently with that indwelling Spirit who gives us all the resources and strength to live accordingly. And of course, we find that these are some very important characteristics that we are to express. Now, last Lord's Day, we got through a host of them. And as this uh, sermon is titled, The New Man, His Position and Pursuit, we got through the pursuit, or we got through the position, which is this. Look at verse 12, that we are chosen of God, holy and beloved, And then, of course, from there, we put on a heart of compassion and everything that follows. So we understand from Paul that there is a starting point. There there is a position that we have to understand about ourselves in order to rightly apply exactly what Paul is going to talk about. I think if we are outside of Christ, it's easy to say that what we produce will only be counterfeit. Anything that looks like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and especially forgiveness will ultimately fail when challenges persist. None of these things will be accomplished rightly unless we understand that yes, we are God's chosen, we are a holy people, and we are a beloved people. So understanding that, first of all, what we've called a position of grace from last week, we can then, after identifying it, initiate a pursuit of godliness. And our pursuit of godliness involves a daily putting on of these things. So last week we got through these. Mark them down. We got through putting on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And of course, we come today to 
forgiveness. And we won't go on any more in this text without understanding the context. I'll remind you again that the Colossians were facing some serious challenges. We find at least from four points. They were facing these challenges in the form of temptations to wander away from the sufficiency of Christ. After understanding from Paul, very eloquently stated, I might add, that Christ is supreme, He is also sufficient. He provides everything that the Christian, that the church needs to thrive, to be a light in this world. See, it's not mere survival. It's achieving its mission for gospel work. It's faithfully proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, guarding itself against the temptations of what we can narrow down to. And if you want to review this, you can read chapter 2. But Paul identifies humanistic philosophy. He says you don't need that. You just need Christ. You don't need legalism. You just need the righteousness of Christ. You don't need mysticism. right? You don't need to go out seeking for some otherworldly experience because Jesus Christ and life in Him is the ultimate experience. Nor do you need monasticism. You are not going to grow in leaps and bounds in your holiness by some self-righteous uh, self-denial. We look to Christ who denied Himself and hung on a cross and died and rose again. He is our ultimate sufficiency. And so, of course, springing forth from that is this satisfaction that the church has in who Christ is, in all who He is. And if we are satisfied with Christ and we know who we are in Him, chosen, holy, beloved, we are ultimately free then. We have our liberty in Christ to pursue godliness. And so we come today to forgiveness. And if you want to know about the other ones leading up to this, I refer you to last week's sermon. So we're just going to go over one particular characteristic of the believer today, and that is forgiveness. And I believe it's important enough, especially where we stand today culturally, to center our attention on this. Yes, we are in a culture war. We are in a culture war. Did you know that? Sometimes we don't really think about that. The church, wherever it is faithful, is fighting for the cause of the gospel. But it's not merely preaching the gospel. Right? It is, in real time, advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And within that advancement, we find a Christian culture, a believing culture, a, a culture of worship. And culture is often defined as worship externalized. But of course, we can't understand worship apart from the character of those who offer it. See, there's going to be something that flows out of who we worship. Remember, we, we become like what we worship. And if we worship the true and living God, we are going to come to reflect Him. We are going to come to be like Him. And that is the goal of every Christian, is to be conformed to Christ's likeness, is to reflect the God that it serves. That is its culture. And I think one of the most distinguishing things about that can be true about Christians today is this characteristic of forgiveness. We have to really understand this in its context, especially today's context. I struggle to see how something like forgiveness, even though it's a word we often pass over, I struggle to see how it can be overstated. As much as defines what a Christian is, I think so much of what it is is defined by the fact that we are able to show forgiveness. And I think here's how it manifests itself in an especially profound way today. Now, the primary culture or cultural influence that the church 
ought to be standing against today, especially, I mean, I, I can't speak for other nations, but I can speak for the situation of the American church. And it goes by, and it goes by many names. Okay? And we want to respond appropriately to it. And of course, it, it prevails upon you guys to do your, to do your due diligence because I can't stand up here and lecture about every, every doctrinal point of what we know today as either wokeism, leftism, progressivism. Sometimes people call it CRT. Some, some people call it cultural Marxism. I think cultural Marxism is, is sort of an appropriate umbrella term. Okay. Now the point today is not to try to go through, go through a lot of flaming hoops to try to adequately describe it. That has been described elsewhere. And I hope to now we realize that that is the primary philosophy that the church is armed up against because cultural Marxism is so, is so valiantly anti-gospel. And so wherever there is overlapping and wherever definitions are difficult to describe, we have to understand that that is the threat that I believe society faces today, and it prevails upon the church to expose it and stand up against it. And so here's why we bring this up. As we've already stated, forgiveness should be a primary characteristic of Christianity. It's stated as much in Scripture. It should be a primary characteristic of all those who are forgiven by God. It should be a staple of church character. According to Paul, it is here. I would say that it's nearly impossible to show forgiveness unless you have compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All those things lend themselves to showing forgiveness. Now, here's why we bring this up. It is because of this. In cultural Marxism, and you can search far and wide, forgiveness does not exist. At least not the kind of forgiveness that we recognize from Scripture. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, the words for forgiveness are very simply understood. In the Old Testament, it comes from the Hebrew nasa, which simply means to lift or to carry away. As if a, a burden or a debt or a liability is lifted from you and it is put away. So that you no longer carry that burden, debt, or liability. We understand that in today's world, do we not? If we have a debt that we have incurred, perhaps it's credit card debt, you know, and, so, and someone comes with some good news and says, hey, the, the debt's forgiven. We say, well, how did that happen? Well, the, well, I don't know, but the debt's forgiven. It's been lifted. That is, you are no longer liable to repay that debt. So that's a beautiful and fitting image of the, of the believer's relationship to sin. Right? We are born in sin. We have the burden of sin. We have the debt owed of sin. And the wages of sin is death. And so that's our burden to bear. And this is what makes the Gospel such good news. Is that when we embrace Christ in faith, we are forgiven. Sometimes we forget that about the Gospel. The Gospel brings a promise of forgiveness of sins. But that debt of death owed to God has been taken off of us and has been placed on Jesus Christ. See, forgiveness isn't free. It's free to us, but it's not completely free. Someone had to pay the debt. And so when we are forgiven, our sins are lifted off of us and carried away, but they are paid for because they are put on Christ. And by His sacrificial death on the cross, which was perfectly pleasing to the Father, we find ourselves free of that debt. We are forgiven people. The Greek expresses much the same. It means to send away. Right? That's why we can understand our sin as being as far from us as the east is from the west. You notice that on the globe, there is no west pole and east pole. 
There's a north and south pole, but no east and west pole. That is, that is the profundity of the separation of our sins from us, is that God in Christ has sent them away. Kind of brings up Old Testament imagery of the scapegoat, the goat that is sent out into the wilderness, never to be seen or heard from again. But in terms of Levitical atonement, it was as if Israel's sins are sent far away from them. And that goat, of course, bears the burden of that. And so when it comes to confronting this godless philosophy that is not only on the doorstep of the church, but often preached from our pulpit, we have to understand that that is what it is, is, is missing. And we don't want to miss the fact that that's what cultural Marxism is missing. It is missing forgiveness. Even though it has its own gospel, it has its own priests, it has its own disciples, there is ultimately no salvation. And the reason is that there's no salvation is because there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no ultimate atonement. And so you can imagine how drastically the church ought to stand out from this invading philosophy. The church should be a culture of forgiveness. And if we are not a, if we do not have a culture of forgiveness or cultivate one, we're going to cease to look like the church. We're going to look like this other philosophy. But I say this to make important note how incompatible biblical Christianity is with cultural Marxism. Forgiveness. You want to lay it out in one word. I think that's, that's sufficient for our task today. It's forgiveness. Interesting uh, article written by Beckett Adams shows how this philosophy works. I'll read some various selections from it, but it's very interesting. It's a, it's a sort of a, a brief expose on the rise of cultural Marxism, but also what it teaches. And, it, and from the outset, one of the distinctives that Adams draws out is that there is no salvation, which is odd because in most world religions, there is some kind of form of salvation, and yet not here. But look what, he, look what is said about it. The point is to capture as many victims as possible so that they can be stripped bare and presented on an altar. This is how holiness is attained. Author goes on, In wokeism, only its closely guarded ranks are safe from judgment. Everyone else is damnable. The mere existence of impiety as an, an act of violence against their beloved deity. And it's still sort of becoming more clear as to what that deity is. I think I think really cultural Marxism inherently is atheistic. It denies specifically the God of the Bible and makes, I believe, a God out of man and a God out of the state. But going on. The woke faithful are therefore highly motivated to search out acts of blasphemy. Once found, they latch on declaring the accused guilty of a grievous sin. Now, you kind of apply this to biblical Christianity. We are all born and, and live and live a decent part of our lives as blasphemers, as unbelievers. And the, and, and the light of Scripture exposes that. But what, is the, but what does the light of Scripture do? It doesn't stop at condemnation. It points us to the good news of a Savior. That is why there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has been already condemned in the flesh, on the cross, for our sin. So there is no more claim that sin and death and the devil himself can lay upon us. Not so with wokeism. There is no full absolution. There is never any full atonement. So there is never any forgiveness. And yet we've allowed this philosophy to infiltrate our ranks. One of the conclusions the author makes is this, and we know that the church, we know what the church of the woke does to the sinful. 
It offers them up as sacrifice to its vengeful and angry God. Acts of contrition be damned. What does that mean? It means the vengeful and angry God of wokeism, however you want to articulate this person, is never satisfied, is never pleased. This is a far cry from the God of Scripture who is compassionate, who is compassionate, who is merciful, who does forgive sinners, who is gracious. And so we desire that those same things be prevalent and dominant in our own culture, in our own setting as a church. I mean, wouldn't we hate to have that burden? Right? Never knowing, right? never knowing if we were fully absolved of sin, if there was ever atoned for, to always be atoning. I mean, this is the very thing that wore out Martin Luther. He always felt that burden of sin. He even came to hate God. Because the burden of sin was always there. It was like, is there, is there any forgiveness? Can I ever be fully absolved, fully cleared, fully atoned for? And yet in another way, in a different historical context, this is the exact same thing that is happening, especially if we allow this kind of thinking to gain a foothold in our own ranks. We will end up rejecting the final, definitive, complete atonement of Christ and His shed blood on the cross. We will reject that gracious forgiveness that is offered from God and God alone. I think it's time to reclaim that benefit of forgiveness, but also to reclaim it as a firm and ongoing characteristic of our own church. And even saying this, it's obvious that, you know, wokeism aside, we, we have our own challenges in our own setting. Every church does. Every church has its challenge. But I think one of the greatest challenges is forgiveness. As distinctive as it is, we are warned in Scripture against vengeance, taking revenge for ourselves, demanding restitution. Sometimes we can develop a habit of holding grudges, just simply refusing to let anything go, that we just heap wound upon wound. And there's never any healing, there's never any reconciliation because we never think to forgive. And so we have broken relationships. You know, it's, I think maybe you'll, you'll see that perhaps in larger churches, but imagine the awkwardness that ensues in a smaller church like ours. Well, this dude is over here. I have something against him, so I better sit on this side of the auditorium. We can't make eye contact. We can't talk. We can't have anything to do with each other because, oh, there's, there's something, there is a rift in our relationship. But what about forgiveness? What about forgiveness? That and our own private demands for quote-unquote justice. Leave forgiveness something to be wanted and yet something that is so hard to attain. But that I believe that is why Paul talks about the heart. If we are to show forgiveness, it begins in the heart. We have to have a forgiving heart. It is a forgiving heart that knows the forgiving heart of God. That's why it's impossible to understand forgiveness even on a human level until we see it exercised by God Himself. And we'll get to that. But I do not want this church to die for lack of forgiveness. I don't want us to constantly be bludgeoning ourselves with reasons to be bitter at one another because we simply lack a forgiving heart. May, you know, may it never be true of any of us that we're on our deathbed and we're saying, man, if I only had, I wish I had been more forgiving. I wish I had a tender heart. I wish I hadn't held things against each other or against everyone else. I wish I was able to let petty offenses go. See, we have to understand this. As a church, we're, you know, we're still being sanctified. I guarantee you something's going to happen in here today. Someone's going to say something or do something and it's going to be offensive to someone else. It's probably already happened. 
And if it hasn't, give it time. There's a potluck at my house this afternoon. Someone is going to do something that offends someone else. And the question is, what will your heart, how will your heart respond? See, these are just the basic issues of Christian life that we must work through. And we must be forgiving. We have to understand this. See, we still have an enemy. He's a, he's a defeated enemy. The death blow has been dealt, but the devil still desires disaster for a church. He still desires division, catastrophe. He wants to see us break apart. And what more efficient way is there than to sow discord? How is that made more manifest, more clearly, than a, bu- than a, than a bunch of people in a room who claim Christ and yet won't forgive each other? So there's a saying, my, my old pastor used to say, you are never more like God than when you forgive. I thought that was a pretty profound statement. You are never more like God than when you forgive. So it also stands to reason you are, you are never less like God than when you refuse to forgive someone else. When you close your heart up against your brother, especially when he desires forgiveness, and refuse to give that to him. And I would go one step further. You are never, you're not only less like God than when you refuse to forgive, but you are, you are never more like the devil himself when you refuse to forgive. It's really a tragic thing when the Christian doesn't forgive. Instead, we sit here and stew, and we just want the person to feel so miserable. We want them to share our misery. And we just let it smolder and on and on and on until we have, until we have a calloused heart. That is a heart that is hostile, friends, toward God. That is a heart that is hostile toward the, the miraculous working of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lack of forgiveness is no, is, is by no means neutral. That is why it is so important to put on a heart, right? The premises of, uh, the premise of this, this whole passage is that we are a new man. We are a new creation in Christ. And as a new creation in Christ, we will be forgiving. No matter, no matter your excuses, I understand, right? We stand together in this. We understand we have been, we've been hurt before. We've been through it. We've been betrayed. We've been stabbed in the back. We've been offended. We've all sinned. We've all been sinned against. And yet, we still have to come to grips with this reality. It is the blood of Christ that brings us forgiveness before a righteous and holy God. And if we refuse to forgive, what we are saying is that though the blood of Christ be enough for God, it is not enough for me. Now work that statement through your head the next time you withhold forgiveness. The blood of Christ, the blood of God's own Son, is good enough for God to bring forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future, but it's not good for you. I'm going to quote my dad when I used to get in trouble. He used to ask me a question. Who do you think you are? (laughs) Look at me. Who do you think you are to withhold forgiveness? You must think you are quite something or someone if the blood of Christ is not good for you, good enough for you. Because the cross, the cross of Christ provides the entire basis of forgiveness. And listen to this, not only for God Himself, but for every saint. We forgive because God has forgiven. That is precisely why Jesus says, if you don't forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven will forgive you. It's very clear where your heart is if you refuse forgiveness, it even demonstrates that you do not stand 
in a position of grace that you have, it demonstrates that you have not yourself been forgiven. Because if any, because he, he who has been forgiven much, what? Loves much. And if you understand, if we understand that we've all been forgiven much, we will love much and forgive much. That is consistent with the work of the Holy Spirit. So as difficult as it is, as difficult as it is, we understand that as God Himself has forgiven us, we also are to forgive others. So that's my introduction. Let's get to the text itself. Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Let's listen to what, let's listen to what Paul says in this very important passage. So let's start, let's start at verse 13. Just after patience, of course, patience and forgiveness are intimately connected. But the first thing he says is this, bearing with one another. So we covered this a bit last Lord's Day. To bear with each other simply means that we make an allowance, and this is gonna, this is gonna be a shock to some of you, but bearing with one another means that you make an allowance for other person, the other person's faults. Now this may strike you as surprising, right? But that's what it means. And I say this because some of us are, have, have become so prone to impatience, and we become so demanding of right behavior from others all the time without exception. And then we understand that righteousness is our standard. We understand that, of course. But we also have to come to grips that we are all still growing. That's why we're patient with one another. That is why we make allowances for people's faults. Yes, we reprove, we rebuke, we correct, we remind. But we are patient with all. And we understand that as long as we are in this earthly body and we are growing, we have to make an allowance for other people's faults and to extend gracious, graciousness and mercy to them and not fly off the handle every time someone crosses us or offends us. Some people have no threshold between that first offense and then rage. And for the Christian, it should be a wide one. There should be lots of patience, lots of willingness to overlook the other person's offenses and faults. For we do the same thing, and if God so treats us, why do we not treat each other the same way? With the same quality of forgiveness. But so often we become demanding. We become angry with one another. Instead of holding up one another in love and accountability. doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sin. Not at all. But it means recognizing the sin and treating it with grace. But if we refuse to do this, we become exactly like the cultural Marxist and we have one more body to lay on the altar. It's exactly why Paul gives us this remedy in Ephesians 4.2. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Paul also says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Right? We're, in a very practical way, we are called in patience and in for, with a forgiving heart to come alongside and help one another. It doesn't always mean that Sam is going to carry Frodo on his back up the slopes of Mount Doom. Sometimes it's not always that drastic of a picture. However, we do aid one another consistently and compassionately in our quest for godliness and spiritual growth. It is definitely a labor of love. But when Paul says do this and fulfill the law of Christ, it means that when we do those things, when we bear one another's burdens, we are doing everything that God would expect from us. And that's why Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. Not just going to let him drop dead, right? No. 
here, bro, let me help you up. I have observed that you have fallen down. I have observed that you are fall, have fallen in a pit. So instead of sitting there and browbeating you, why don't I go find a rope and help you out of this pit that you have fallen in? Perhaps it's a pit you've dug for yourself. Doesn't matter. Perhaps it was a pit dug for you. Forgive your brother and help him bear his burdens. I love this verse, one of my favorite verses. I use this verse often in uh, marital counseling, whether it's pre, mid, or sometimes post-marital counseling. Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. So understand this, part of having a forgiving heart is often overlooking things. Now, of course, you're going to have to apply wisdom to know what those things are. It's not that you turn a blind eye to everything. But many offenses are, are very trite. And we can over, it is to your glory to overlook those things. That is a picture of a person who has a forgiving heart. It is their supernatural disposition to instead of being really offended by even, by even common slights, they just let it go, right? They send it away. They don't choose to burden you with it. Now, of course, the question will come up, well, what if, what if this person has sinned grievously, grievously against me? Or what if this person keeps sinning in this manner? What if this person does not know his faults or he senses no need for repentance? Those are legitimate questions that need to be answered. And I'll say at least this much. Because one of the, one of the, uh, the tricks of forgiveness is that it is transactional, right? We can have a forgiving heart, absolutely. But forgiveness itself is transactional because forgiveness understands that, that a fault has been done. One person has sinned against another, whether that, whether that means man has sinned against God or man has sinned against man. For forgiveness to be complete, confession and confession of sin and repentance from sin must happen. But the key is, is that we always, if we are, if we are the offended party, we always have a heart of forgiveness. We are always prepared to forgive, and in that way, we are able to keep bitterness at bay. We're warned about that in the Scriptures, to be aware of roots of bitterness. We don't want those things to take root in our hearts. We don't want those things to take root in our congregation. Not at all. But we do have to understand that, yes, there is, I mean, many of you perhaps have been through that. There is a heartache that comes with a willingness to forgive, and yet the person who has offended you has not come and, re- and confessed and repented and asked you for forgiveness. We know that. that. That is a hard thing. And yet, that is exactly why the church as, as a body bears one another's pains and burdens. I mean, I, I've, been, I've been through that too. It's, it's, it's a very difficult burden to have on your shoulders. Is, is wanting that person to come and confess and repent and you're willing to forgive as God has forgiven you and yet they see no need for it. But I will say, as a standing principle, always nurture and cultivate a, a forgiving heart. Always prepared to relinquish the debt. Always willing to send away the offense and resist the temptation to be bitter. Listen to Ephesians 4.32, part of our Scripture reading this morning. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, clamor, the noise we make, right? And slander must be removed from you along with all malice. So he's pretty much getting at the same thing that Paul's getting at. Earlier in Colossians 3, right? Get rid of this, take off this, remove this, repent from this, and then put this in its place. We don't want to be like the man whose home is swept clean so that seven more unclean spirits can come and occupy him so that his state is worse than the first. 
So get rid of those things. And in its place, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. See, God has not only forgiven us, He has forgiven us in Christ on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in His death and resurrection. And so with that change of heart, we are ready to give grace. We are ready to give mercy. We are ready to give forgiveness in the pattern of Christ who gave His own life so that we may have forgiveness of sins and every other spiritual benefit that God gives out generously and abundantly. Like Paul, we can be those who are poured out like a drink offering. We can give and give and give because the One who is given to us has infinite resources. So these are the qualities that we seek to cultivate in our lives. And though it's not easy, we understand the depth of human heartache. It is by God's Spirit and God's Spirit alone and, and also with the support of one another that we can have forgiving hearts and continue to show forgiveness. So important. So let's move on in our text. We bear with one another and forgiving each other. We've talked about uh, the importance of forgiveness, the meaning of forgiveness, and also each other the one another's. We as people of God practice the one another's. Christianity is not self-contained. Right? It is not individualistic. It, 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 by its very nature, reaches out to his brother or sister in Christ. So we forgive one another. That's the whole transactional nature of forgiveness. And so he says, reading on, whoever has a complaint against anyone. I kind of laugh when I first read that because sometimes, depending on the culture of any given church, there can be a culture of complaining. We can find ourselves very similar to the Israelites. Though God gave them everything they needed while wandering through the desert, continue to complain and lift up their voices against God. And if we allow that attitude to take place in our own midst, we will start complaining against one another. It's part of our spiritual immaturity. I think that's why we, we bear one another's burdens because we know that often we are prone to complaining. We say really stupid stuff that's ill-timed and sometimes exaggerated. Think of how you exemplify that in your own life and then repent. Complaint. We understand there's going to be disagreements. We're not going to see eye to eye on everything. There's going to be strife. Yes, there is. there can be friction within the body of Christ. Think of it as a... Think of it as an engine, right? We're a, we're a well-oiled engine, yet the, the, the oil needs to be changed. But if the oil remains, we sort of get some gumming up, we get some seizing, and we don't want that to happen. But that's what strife looks like in the life of the church. There's offenses. Many of the greatest offenses are done unknowingly. You know, maybe someone looked at you the wrong way. They gave you the stink eye or something. Or they said something, and you got offended, and it was taken the wrong way. Maybe you're easily offended and need to repent from that. But a lot of these things are, are, are petty and inconsequential. Sometimes they're not. However, we understand that offenses happen within the body of Christ. And we complain about them. Sometimes there's, there's miscommunication. right? Communication takes place between two or more people. And sometimes something is said with a completely different intent than what is received. You, know, you say something to someone, well, what do you mean by that? Hey, bro, I just... I just really want you to know that I've been observing your life and you have grown so much. Praise the Lord. What do you mean by that? You mean I was immature before? Do you mean I wasn't growing before? What do you mean by that? You see how easy that can happen? Miscommunication. Misunderstandings. See, a lot of these are simply offenses we can overlook. Just get on with life and love one another. 
Sometimes it's very hard though. But that's why Paul gives the remedy. If you have a complaint against one another, and you will, mark my words, you will. Look what he says to us. He says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I love it when he says that because we have an immediate, undeniable, and fixed standard by which we apply these Christian virtues. Not to forgive in any vague sense. No, he is, he is bringing up here a qualitative statement. Because of course we want to know that. How should we forgive? We, we asked the same question that I think, I believe it was Peter who asked the Lord. How shall I forgive? What is the quality of your forgiveness? And of course, Paul aims pretty high here. He says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That may seem out of reach. That's very lofty. And yet the standard, it remains. The Lord has forgiven us. So how has the Lord forgiven us? Because this is our supreme example. And I want to go over a few things. I think all these are important. But let's understand how the Lord has forgiven us so we can put these very same things into practice. See, plenty of application. What's the first thing? Well, let's understand that the Lord, when He forgives us, He forgives us willfully. The Lord is not stingy in His forgiveness. He does not withhold forgiveness from those who come to Him humbly. He forgives us willfully. The Lord has a forgiving heart. One of the, one of the primary scenes I love to visit and revisit in Scripture is on, on, on the mountain in Exodus 34-7 when the Lord walks by Moses and proclaims His name to him. And the Lord, in Exodus 34, verse 7, describes Himself as this. He is the one who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, right? Those who have crossed Him, those who have disobeyed His law, forgives wrongdoing. He says He will, but He also says He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, and that He inflicts the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Yes, His retribution is just. It is severe and often frightening. And yet, don't miss that. He is a God who forgives wrongdoing. He forgives sins. And He makes every provision for that to happen. He he forgives because it's part of His nature. He forgives because He wants to forgive you. So why should we withhold forgiveness from one another? Why should we fail in that desire? Listen to Micah 7, 18-19. Who is a God like you who pardons wrongdoing? Answer, no one. He does not retain his anger forever. Oh, listen to this. It says, and passes over rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he what? Delights in mercy. God likes being merciful. He will take, uh, he will again take pity on us. He will trample on our wrongdoings. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea interesting that he goes back from talking to God to talking about God back to talking to God. You are this, Lord. See, He will do this. Lord, You will do this. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. It's as if our sins have been lifted off of us and put somewhere else no longer to burden us in the way they once did. Imagine that. God does this willfully. He also does it authoritatively. It is by God's Word and God's Word alone that forgiveness takes place. Only God can ultimately forgive sins. This was the whole debate, even in the Gospel of Mark, when 
Jesus heals the paralytic and it says, seeing, and Jesus seeing their faith said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, the nerve of Jesus. No one, doesn't he know that no one can forgive sins except God alone? Well, Jesus is God, so he has the authority to forgive sins. He does so authoritatively. And so we can with the authority of God's word tell a brother in Christ, you are forgiven. I, I can forgive you because God has forgiven me. And because God has forgiven you. So I will not hold that away uh, again. I will not hold your offense against you. I will not hold it over you. Here's another one. And this is the word we studied last week. When God forgives, He forgives compassionately. So also should we. Right? We talked about compassion, meeting a need, understanding the brokenness of a person, to suffer with them. Listen to Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. It's a great gospel call. He says this Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way and let the unrighteous person his thoughts. See, what we call this is repentance. Here's the transaction taking place. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, this is the picture of a person who has recognized the error of their ways, who has recognized the depth of their sin. And they think of God, think of the Lord. Yes, perfectly righteous is wrathful on the unrepentant, and yet He is a God of compassion. If we return to Him, surely, surely He will pardon us. And that's exactly what He gives. And if you have not done that, I urge you to do that today. Don't test His patience. Know that our God is a compassionate God who forgives sins. All of them. And going on from this, we also find that He forgives sins completely. Isn't that amazing? God does not forgive sins partially. He does not leave sins hanging over our head. When He forgives, He forgives all of them. Now listen to Isaiah again. Chapter 43, verse 25. I, I alone, once again reminding us where forgiveness comes from, and the one who wipes out your wrongdoings for my own sake. The slate is clean. And he says this, and I will not remember your sins. This is one of the marvelous provisions of the new covenant. We read such language in Jeremiah. Their sins I will remember no more. It's not merely that God forgets our sins against Him. It's that He deliberately does not call them to mind so as to use them to accuse and condemn us. Now how does He do that? Of course, He does that because our sins have been placed on Christ. And they have been wiped out. That is what happened on the cross. The certification of accusations against us, all the ways we defy the living God have been wiped out because Christ has put him, put them upon Himself. And so the Lord can say, with all the joy of heaven, your sins I will remember no more. I mean, what can give the Christian more hope and joy? What can heal a broken heart more than that statement, your sins I remember no more? And what do we receive in place of that? It's not just that God does not remember our sins anymore. It's that He clothes us in the garments of salvation. He gives us the very righteousness of His Son so that we can stand before Him as sons of God, as fully forgiven. We find this very clear in the Last Supper in Matthew 26-28. Jesus says this, and we remember we commemorate this. We celebrate this every Lord's Day. He says, for this is the blood of the covenant which is being poured out for many, for forgiveness of sins. The very purpose right there, clearly stated. 
when Christ laid down His life, when He shed His blood for us, sins were forgiven. Our sins were taken away. Here's another one. I think this can be the final one. Repeatedly, we are. There, there's a once for all component to our sins being forgiven, but, the, but, but God works with us also in real time. He forgives us of our sins. He washes our feet. It is in 1 John 1.9 that we read, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Once again, the, the, the hope of the Christian is that we stand forgiven and we stand purified. And we can come to Christ and repeatedly have our feet washed and confess our sins with honesty, with humility, and with joy, recognizing that He has made every provision available for us to enjoy His forgiveness and to enjoy our fellowship with Him. Listen to Luke 17.4. says, And if your brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now I know many of us have that inclination. Oh no, six was enough. I'm not going to forgive you again. This is it. What does Jesus say? Nah, seven times. Forgive him. Repeatedly. If he repents. Right? Then once again, the transactional nature of forgiveness. Further than this, even Jesus says, remember when he was questioned, shall I, uh, what shall I do, Lord? Shall I for my, how many times shall I forgive my brother a day? Up to seven times? I imagine that the one asking that thought that he was shooting a little high. Like seven seems generous, right? Seven is a nice round number. And then Jesus says, well, not merely seven times. He says, 70 times seven. Now I know what you're thinking. Does this mean that at the 491st time, I can finally say, no, I'm not going to forgive you. I am tapped out. You're on your own, bucko. All right. Well, no. Uh, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I think we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Daniel chapter 9. And this is a passage that, oh man, Christians across the ages just love fighting about. We're not going to fight about it this morning. We can fight about it at the potluck. But here we go. Daniel 9. The 70 weeks in the Messiah. Of course, what's being prescribed here is 70 weeks of years. So in verse 24, we read 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, a seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So we can at least understand at face value here that there's 70 weeks here, 70 times 7, 490 years total are being prescribed here, are being prophesied about regarding not only the history of the Jews, but also the work of the Messiah. Everything I just read is something that Jesus himself fulfilled and accomplished. And so he talks about that and he goes, and he goes on describing what's going to happen. Verse 26, then after the, the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Okay. So this is, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, something that is going to happen to him. So all these weeks are, all these weeks are going by. All these years are happening from the time this is decreed and onwards. So it discusses not only the exile, but the return from exile and the years following, all leading up to what the Messiah, who is Jesus, will accomplish. And of course, at some point, those years will be terminated. That time will be up. And what's significant about Jesus talking about this is, is that that time in Jesus' ministry is almost up. Just using simple math, from the time of this decree to around this time, a little bit after Jesus ascended to heaven, sometime during the apostolic era, 
These 490 years terminate the time of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And then, of course, if you read down, go to, go to Daniel uh, 9.26, it says, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So there will be judgment on the city of Jerusalem. Okay? There will be a judgment. And then, of course, he goes on. Look at verse 27. He talks about, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So that is talking about the very same event to, to befall Jerusalem told in parallel fashion. So what this means, what does this mean, of course, pertaining to forgiveness? Well, what is, what is this timeline here? What is being demonstrated here? Not only the work of the Messiah, but also the patience of God in dealing with His wayward people. Remember, the Jews rejected their Messiah. Of course, they continued spiraling down into a legalistic spiritual apostasy where they even persecuted severely the people of God. And we understand that once those 490 years were up, then at some point along the way, vis-a-vis verse 26 and 27 of Daniel chapter 9, the Jews would be judged. Their city would be judged. And so what happens? what's happening by Jesus' statement is that He is saying that our willingness to forgive should be consistent to God's forgiving heart to a rebellious nation. So the standard's never been lowered. That, my friends, is a forgiving heart. That is the patience of God toward His people. Yes, time was up eventually. But imagine how long He he contended with them and forgave their sins and gave them mercy and gave them forgiveness. And yet without without compromising his own righteousness, his own justice. And it was still meted out on a rebellious people. But Jesus' point is that our forgiveness, our forgiving heart, should be far and above what we typically believe it should be. If our forgiveness is to in any way reflect God, take apostate Israel as the perfect example. That God gave apostate Israel so much patience before the end finally came. So if we think we are a forgiving people, this is a great time to re-examine how much, how, how forgiving we truly are. So in closing, that is the forgiveness of God. That is the forgiveness we should come to reflect and exemplify as His Spirit gives us power. But we have to, we have to answer this one question. This will go very quickly in closing. For us in the Christian life, in church life, when repentance is involved, When this transaction of forgiveness takes place, what does it look like? Five things very quickly, and I will not expand upon them mostly, but I want I want you guys to write this down because they are very helpful biblical principles to apply. Again, they 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 prevent division, they prevent bitterness, and of course, they continue to water a heart of forgiveness. So here's number one. One is this when I am forgiving that I am making a decision not to obsess over the offense. Repentance has been offered. Confession has been offered. Forgiveness has been given. Do not obsess over the offense. Just as God will remember that sin no more, so you remember that sin no more. Secondly, do not, if I have forgiven my brother, I will you not use this as an occasion to start digging up other perceived offenses. Deal with the sin at hand immediately. Don't, don't dig back into their history and bring every 
occasion of sin against you into the light. That demonstrates you don't have a forgiving heart. If you want to recognize patterns, fine. And address those as necessary. But do not use that as grounds to start digging up every other perceived offense. Thirdly, if we are forgiving, then we choose not to bring up the incident again or use it against them, right? We're not going to hold them hostage continually. That is what a forgiving heart does. Or does not do. It will not bring up the incident again, right? Don't use that as leverage. Don't use that in order to gain the upper hand or power over your brother. And really quick pause. Hey, think about how this works out in your own marriage. Sometimes marriage, for some reason, is ground zero for a lack of forgiveness. But think about how this works in your own marriage dynamic. Not obsessing over the offense. Not using it as an opportunity to start digging up other sins. Not bringing up the incident again and using it against you. Think about how that works. Think about the joy and forgiveness and peace that will be in your marriage if you apply these things right away. Fourthly, this is the big one. This one's the hardest one. If I forgive you, I will not talk about this incident to others so as to bring reproach against you. It's a tough one. But if it's been forgiven, keep your mouth shut. Don't use it so as to bring reproach against that person. And I would say if you are going to bring it up to another person or to the person who has offended you, make sure it's already known and bring it up as an occasion to bring God glory for bringing victory over that sin. That is the only case that you bring that up. Fifthly, I will not let, if I have forgiven you, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our mutual love in Christ. See, forgiveness does the opposite of that. It propels us forward in our mutual love in Christ. It helps us grow in our mutual love in Christ. See, a forgiving marriage is a loving marriage. A forgiving church is a loving church. See, the less friction we have, the more work we accomplish together in Christ because there is nothing hindering our mutual love for one another. See, what happens is when we refuse to get, forgive, what we're saying is we're basically calling Christ in as our witness. And we are <laughs> pronouncing Christ's condemnation on you. Right? Don't bring Jesus into, that, into this in that manner. For He is the one through whom we are forgiven. So keep those five principles in mind. Forgiveness, again, is so important. It's so distinctive. And if there is a time for the church to start putting on a heart of forgiveness, it is now. Because those who are tired of the self-condemnation and lack of forgiveness of this prevailing ungodly philosophy as they feel burdened by that, at some point, friends, they're going to start looking. Where can I receive forgiveness? Where can I be unburdened by this? Where can I receive atonement for these sins that I've committed? Sins though they may be, they should look to the church. That's the first thing they should notice. Wow, the church, they, they not only love each other, they're not only honest with each other, but man, they forgive. They don't hold their offenses against each other. Why? Because our God doesn't hold offenses against us. That's the God we proclaim. That's the God to whose kingdom we belong and proclaim and desire to grow. Wow, that's a kingdom that anyone, anyone that the Holy Spirit is speaking to would want to be a part. So may we not be overlooked because we refuse to forgive, but rather may we be, may we be noticed and peculiar because Forgiveness is so strong. Forgiveness is so obvious and practiced because we want to forgive as God has forgiven us. So with God's grace and blessing and strength, may that be true of us.
Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together in your word. Thank you for forgiveness. Uh, it's, it's nearly impossible to exhaust both its depth and its glory. But if we can leave here understanding one thing today, may it be this, that it is by your grace and your grace alone through the work of Christ alone that we can stand here forgiven that our sins have been lifted away from us. And of course, secondly, that if that has happened, that we should show that same consideration to one another. May we be, may we be faithful to practice the one another's. May we be quick to forgive. May we not be miserly and stingy in showing compassion toward one another by refusing to reconcile, by refusing peace to a, to a brother. Lord, you have not refused us, and yet you have drawn us to, to experience your love and forgiveness. And Father, if I, if I left anything out today that needs to be said regarding forgiveness, uh, you say it where I, where I have been lacking. I do want our church to be a church with a culture of forgiveness. That when we declare that we are representatives of your, of your kingdom, that we belong to a kingdom where forgiveness is found. Lord, may it continue to grow in our midst. May we be, te- may we be tender-hearted toward one another, forgiving one another just as you have forgiven us in Christ. Lord, we, we know that we have our own blind spots and we do pray. And there's instruction in this prayer that if we have something against someone or if someone has something against us, that we would humble ourselves and, and uh, pursue reconciliation so that uh, we do not allow a root of bitterness to take hold. So that we are that we have forgiving hearts toward one another. Lord, we do confess that sometimes that is the case. Um, and so we need, your, we need Your grace, we need Your wisdom, we need the light of Scripture to shine on our own hearts and see if we have anything against anyone that can be worked out so that forgiveness and reconciliation can, uh, can come into full bloom. Pray this for us, Lord, and I pray ultimately that You would be glorified in it. Uh, bless the rest of our time of worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.